You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. I did it differently this week for my regular, sometimes co-host, Paul Doroshenko. I'm the regular co-host now. You haven't had another guest on except me in a little while. And you know, I, I had, think I, I should be guest... elevated to some new level um, where basically I am uh, just a co-host. Well, I think it should be the driving law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko. And that would be great if you had any topics to contribute that were driving law related. But so far you've told me about parents and kids with fentanyl and complaints about property crime in Vancouver and t-shirts, none of which are driving law related topics. So that's true. You do come up with topics, So it's still your podcast. Yes. I did have a guest lined up for today, but uh, it turns out time zones are hard. Yeah, I understand that. Well, yeah. we usually record this later in the evening. Sometimes we have a drink before, sometimes we have a drink after. Well, you have a drink before. Well, you don't drink I anymore. don't drink. Yeah. yeah. But uh, in any event, so the um, here we are, Thursday night, late once again, surprisingly busy week. Yes. Recording the podcast. So, speaking of driving law related topics, big news this week. From the Uber, Lyft, Cater, etc. ride-sharing front. This week, uh, the Vancouver Taxi Conglomerate. I don't know what they are called. The Taxi Association. Um, taxi has, Monopoly. Yeah, pretty much. The, you know, the, the taxi, uh, the taxi people. The I just picture the Monopoly man, but like yellow. They're in, all getting together suit, and trying you know? to fix prices and... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the monopoly. Limit man. the market. Anyway, they're mad. They're mad about the fact that there are no caps on fleet size for the ride sharing vehicles. And they have filed a judicial review of the Transportation Board's decision not to impose caps in BC Supreme Court. And interestingly, uh, another another thing that we can get into, Claire Trevana, Minister of Transportation for British Columbia, has Why hasn't also... she been on the podcast? Uh, she was, um, too busy to come on initially when the ride sharing thing sort of happened. That's why we had Bowen Ma, who is an excellent guest and very informative. Um, but yeah, I mean, Claire Trevana would be a great guest. But the point, back to what I was saying, Paul, she has also written a letter in her capacity as Minister of Transportation for British Columbia to the Transportation Safety Board asking them to reconsider their decision. Well, not asking them to reconsider their decision, but outlining them to outlining her concerns with their decision, which is potentially problematic. So I thought we could break that down because you and I Well they're not they're not functus. I mean they are a ongoing mm -hmm. administrative board, so they, they can, can make revisit any decisions their, at any time. They can revisit their decision. Yes. But Two big questions that come out of this. One, what's going to happen with this judicial review? Where do you think it's going? Let's talk it through on the standard of review. And two, and more importantly, and I want to start with this, is it appropriate for a minister to write a letter to a board 
to outline her concerns with their decision, or is that improper government influence in the independent decision-making of a tribunal and our board? I think we have to talk about the nature of that board. So you want to break this down in a number of different ways. Why don't we start with the first proposition you had, um, which was, is this something that can succeed on the standard of review that we've got that we're applying today in British Columbia. Today, but maybe not tomorrow. Well, that's the thing. It's an ongoing, if you're not a <laughs> well, lawyer, then, at least then not, you missed the joke. But yeah. if you're pretty much any lawyer uh, following the uh, saga of administrative tribunals and the reviews of their decisions in higher levels of court, you will discover that the standard of review, uh, although Kyla stands up in court probably three times a week and says, we all agree on the standard of review, um, the stand it's reasonableness. Yeah, the standard of review it's, and the... It, and also, spoiler alert, it's always reasonableness, except where it's patent on reasonableness because it's written into a statute. Otherwise, it's reasonableness. There's literally like one instance ever in which it's going to be correctness. So it's basically a bit of a joke yeah. uh, in, the, uh, in the legal field. And, you know, there's aspects of our justice system when you look at it. Um, you, it's hard to say that it isn't a joke. But when it comes to standard of review of administrative tribunals, the the um, bizarre uh, bizarre positions that have been taken over the year to just years to justify things that are really hard to justify oh, is look. is uh, when <laughs> when the Supreme Court of Canada announced that it was going to revisit the standard of review in these Bell cases. And when that all was happening, I thought, you know, maybe I'll seek intervener status because I really want to say something. But as far as I could get in my like intervener factum in my brain that I was like drafting was reasonableness permits injustice. And I actually think that's really all you need to say because reasonableness, as it's currently defined, permits injustice because it says exceeding amounts of deference to the decision maker. And that uh, as long as an outcome is justified, transparent, and intelligible, and within a range of possible outcomes justifiable in respect of the facts and law, it's reasonable. Which means you could have a stupidly unfair, bullshit outcome that, that damages people, that damages the public interest, that damages whatever, like, you name it. And it could still be reasonable because it could be a potential outcome available. And that, to me permits injustice and has been abused for the purposes of creating injustice. The, That's my rant. Yep. Well, I'm with There's you 100%. There's my five minutes at the SCC. Uh, my, uh, my concern, as you know, is the uh, deference to the trier of fact. When the trier of fact can craft their uh, findings of fact to get to a certain result. And I think in my career, I've seen this expand dramatically, not just oh, in yeah. tribunals, but at, you know, court level. Uh, and I've, you know, overheard judges in line to get a drink, uh, joking about how they can write any decision uh, by finding whatever facts they want and making it fit within the law. Yeah, but you're not and, talking about reasonableness there because you're talking about judges and judges the, aren't reviewable oh, yes. on the standard of reasonableness. But, but here, I'll give you but an example. But this is what tribunals do all the time. They make findings of fact to fit the result yes. and then there's deference to their finding of fact. I'll give you a real world example of that on a reasonableness standard, not some story about judges laughing. 
in a recent case I had where an adjudicator in a uh, an IRP review decision said, I don't believe that you used mouthwash because if you used mouthwash, the officer would have smelled mouthwash on your breath and not liquor. And he says he smelled liquor on your breath, so you couldn't have used mouthwash. And I said, that's ridiculous. It assumes, first of all, that the officer was truthful when he said he smelled liquor. Secondly, it ignores that the mouthwash contained liquor and therefore would have a liquor-like smell. And thirdly, it ignores the fact that um, the, the question of whether there was a smell of liquor on his breath was very much in dispute by virtue of the fact that he said that he'd used the mouthwash. And the judge is like, eh, reasonableness. It was a finding of fact that the officer would have smelled this. I think that's nonsense. I'm you make you. this finding a fact that the officer would have done something and therefore that's defensible on the reasonableness standard? Well, phew, an officer would never have done anything wrong ever. Let's uphold all IRPs, period. And that ties into my earlier point. And I'm not just trying to tie in my point. But what I would like to do is move back to the taxis. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the standard of review, reasonableness which it can be so broad that it's almost ridiculous and you can reverse engineer a decision by making findings of fact that would then be reasonable. But also, like, if you actually look at the reasonableness standard of review and the decision that they're seeking to review, which is whether it's appropriate to impose fleet size caps. And obviously there's, you know, the evidence on the one hand before the transportation bureau that, or transportation board that, you know, not capping fleet sizes could increase congestion. And we already have huge congestion issues in the lower mainland and not capping fleet sizes could damage the financial interests of the taxi industry because they, there would be too many Ubers and nobody would take a taxi um, or, you know, those types of arguments. I suppose but those are considerations, except that's are. the whole point of having Uber. Um, they is that it's going to compete and of course it's going to hurt the taxi industry, but those are considerations and, yep. and the, uh, you know, there's there been, are considerations on the other side. There's been too. quite a few discussions about Uber causing more congestion and more traffic problems. And in fact, if you look at the studies, I'm that concerned have been... that people will depart from using transit or bikes because Uber will be so convenient. No, uh, the studies that have been done show that congestion where, um, where ride sharing has been introduced has actually alleviated and there's lots of reasons for it one you can take those those pools um i don't know that you've ever done it i've certainly never I done it i just read a study a, uh, an article the other day about a study i didn't read the study where they were talking about how it increased congestion by having ride sharing i don't call it ride sharing i call it ubering because it's not you're not sharing it's basically you can you can get an uber pool where you share with multiple people it's well, less that might, expensive that might do it. And say you're a commuter and you're coming from Langley. You can't get the SkyTrain in Langley. So ordinarily what you would do is you would drive to the nearest park and ride. You would park your vehicle and then you would ride the SkyTrain in potentially, or you'd just drive all the way in. Well, now you can Uber pool with a bunch of people to the SkyTrain and get there. And it'll probably cost you less than parking at the park and ride. Saves you on the fuel. And um, it decreases those numbers of vehicles that are going from Langley to wherever Scott Road, I guess. Okay, so Uber pool people are going to use, um, maybe create less congestion. Mm -hmm. But 
I will tell you right now that there will be a lot of people who will choose to use Uber instead of riding their bike. There will be people who choose to use Uber instead of riding the bus. Uh, and that will add to congestion. Well, I, I don't know. I've looked at research that has said the opposite. So I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't read the research. I've only read the article that refers to the research. Have you actually read the research? I have, in fact. Oh, okay. Um, I prepare for these podcasts. <laughs> I, I, I know you do. Um, there is a... So those are the arguments on the one side. But on the other side, you have the fact that there are consistently 45-minute lineups at the airport to get... Ah, uh, Linda Steele was tweeting the other day that there was a three-minute lineup. It's not consistent. It just seems that it's consistent every time I walk out, there's a 45-minute lineup. Well, one time I walked out and I walked right to the front and got in a taxi. It's not every time, but it is common enough. It, it's shockingly bad and embarrassing as a city when you get off with a bunch of tourists and you walk out and the line is literally a 45-minute line. Look, I went to Las Vegas, and I've become very accustomed to, when I go to the U.S., taking an Uber wherever I'm going, because I don't know how to find a taxi in a foreign town. I had bad experiences taking taxis when I went to Dallas this one time. Uh, you know, Uber in the U.S. functions great. In Las Vegas, Uber is less convenient than taking a taxi. You can walk out the front of any of those casino hotels and walk right into a taxi. There's somebody there who puts you right in, tells them where you're going, and away you go. And it ended up being more convenient than the Uber because you had to find some weird underground parkade where the Ubers would pick people up. Um, so That's a discouragement know, Uber. Yeah, perhaps, but it's also a city that's managing its congestion. There's no fleet size issues that's not hurting the taxi industry and that has also got a high number of people that are there taking taxis that have successfully been able to accommodate all of those people so you're not standing waiting for 45 minutes in front of a casino to get in a cab to get to the casino on the other end of the strip. Don't they have like a monorail or something? They do. They do. They have a monorail. And they have um, shuttles between casinos that are free, like little little mini monorail things, mm. little Skytrain-like things that you can get between two or three casinos at a time. Um, there is a way, like you could theoretically go from one end of the strip to the other without ever going outside, if you were that motivated. Yeah, it's just, it never appeals to me. Anyway, um, back to the taxis and back to this decision. So do you think the decision is judicially reviewable. Have you read the decision? Did they give a decision or did they just make an order? I believe they just made an order, but it doesn't matter because you can judicially review an of order. Of course, of uh, course, I mean, but the, a decision the, might be appeal or the judicial review lies from the order. Um, the other thing is that all they have to show, right? Like, first of all, the burden is on the taxi on the applicant to The taxi people to demonstrate that it was unreasonable, which would mean that they would have to show that there was either a manifest flaw in their reasoning. Which is hard to say when you've just got an order. Yeah, well, it, it's not hard to say because all you have to do is show that there was some process where the evidence was weighed and a conclusion was reached on the available evidence that didn't involve any of the identifiable manifest flaws that the Court of Appeal and, and other cases have articulated, like looking at things like overlooking 
uh, a particularly relevant piece of evidence or ignoring a conflict in the evidence. And reasons don't even need to be perfect. Reasonableness also accommodates imperfection. So if you make a mistake, that can be overlooked as long as your ultimate conclusion it wouldn't change. So you can even say, um, pursuant to the Judicial Review Procedure Act, yes, the decision was unreasonable, but the outcome wouldn't change, so the decision can stand nonetheless. You still have to demonstrate not only was it unreasonable, but also that it could have potentially impacted the outcome. How soon do you think they can get this in? Because this oh, is God. all supposed to happen quickly, right? Yeah, they're not going to get it in before we've got, I mean, unless they're, and I hope they don't do this, but they could apply for a stay of the decision pending the judicial review. And they have. So can they get it? Well, they can, can demonstrate they damages. Yeah, they um, can demonstrate irreparable harm. It's certainly the status quo is the status quo, which is what we have right now. Balance of convenience. Certainly Balance of convenience. Favors the status quo. Yeah. As we know, it's kind of like the the pithy part about balance of convenience favors the status quo. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Um, irreparable harm, and then yeah, there's a serious question to be tried. Okay, taxi industry, there you have it. Like the threshold uh, for serious might question to be Might want to phone trying. up your lawyers and tell them uh, we're, we want to do <laughs> we want no. We want to seek a stay of the Please, decision. No. Well, I mean, you could seek a partial stay of the, pro, of the decision. You could say, you know, they should consider imposing caps in the meantime or something like that. But how do you do that? You can't, you can't just impose, like the court can't grant injunctive relief by rendering a decision <clears throat> even temporarily that the the board didn't render like it's either there's a well it's kind of, of like approval. it's kind of like we'll let you build a six foot fence but we won't let you build the 10 foot fence that's an issue they're not going to do yeah, that okay. there's no fence no i know there's either a fence or no fence yeah so i mean if they're doing this to try and get injunctive relief maybe they don't even believe that their argument is meritorious maybe i mean you know putting the the most cynical perspective on this, and you know how I love to be a cynic, well-documented in, in reported decisions. <laughs> the um, If you put the most cynical lens on it, they file their judicial review, they apply for their stay, they meet the test for injunctive relief, the matter proceeds to hearing, but we all know the standard of review is changing soon. It's probably going to if the supreme court of canada has thought about it it's going to happen before november because they don't want to spring it on law students right before their exam <laughs> um if they do it in november they won't have time to teach it and all admin law first semester students will be screwed yeah i remember my admin law professor coming in at the first day and said by the time we get to the end of this term most of this will be all garbage yeah well, so here's your here's your here's your case book we made it up last week. We had to change it because of a bunch. And about halfway through the course, he walked in and said, yeah, you just forget about like page 30 to 70. It's overturned. Yeah. No, but I mean, I don't think that it's going to be lost on the Supreme Court of Canada that their decision in these cases could potentially impact law students. So we'll likely see a decision oh, in you're, my you're, prediction. No way. Yes, way. They don't give a shit about law students. I will publicly bet you on this podcast, Paul Doroshenko, I will bet you $100 that the decision will come before November 1st. Oh my God. Normally we bet a Coke. 
Once we bet $1,000 and I ended up losing. You lost that bet that hard. Hurt, and that hurt. And I, I felt was, great about it. I know. I was, <laughs> that was my electric bike money. I'd been saving it in a sock. It was hard to pay. Um, I you'd laugh I, about it all the time. I don't even remember what I did with that $1,000. I think I spent it on like a CLE or something. You spent it on something. I think actually you donated that money to your suit drive. I think you bought the... Um, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I got like $800 worth of gift cards. Gift cards with it. Yeah, well, there you go. So the $1,000 went to good. Yeah, I know, but that wasn't my intention. I mean, I didn't mind it going you, to good. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't, didn't, I didn't I intend didn't, for it to be used for I good. I didn't intend to lose that bet to be... I might have given you $400 towards those gift cards. Um, $100 right now. No, Coke. Can of Coke. Coke. Yeah, I have enough cans of Coke. All right, $100. $100. $100 right now before November 1st. The, okay, let's cl clarify the bet, though. I want to know precisely what year. The Supreme Court of Canada will render a decision in the Bell Trilogy, the admin law standard of review cases, prior to November 1st, 2019. Okay, I'll take it. Last time we picked October 31st and um, it, uh, the date went to the end of the year before I lost that bet. I said it was going to happen earlier. This time I'm saying it's happening later. Uh, anyway. Maybe I'll get my, maybe I'll be up. Our public, our public <laughs> You'll bet be down to made. $900. And um, so, cynically. See if I have 100 bucks coming. They October. could be buying time for that hoping that the change in standard of review discussion might make their likelihood of success on their judicial application, judicial review application greater. Alternatively, no, they if, they get get it on, they if they get it on beforehand and they're unsuccessful, they know that they've got a built-in appeal when the standard of review changes. And while they're running their appeal, they can continue the stay because as the BC Court of Appeal said in Chandler, when you have injunctive relief pending the outcome of a judicial review and then you file an appeal it doesn't make sense not to continue that injunctive relief yes i remember the circumstances there were significantly different and uh, this is uh, thwarting the legislative uh, the intent of the legislation i would think the government would take that position but in any event let's move on because we've exhausted the standard of review aspects right. when it comes to then let's move on to what the minister the minister is thinking yeah writing to them um yeah you know i on the one hand because they are really supposed to implement the legislation in this way you could see why the government would want to make clear to the tribunal what they intended on the other hand the tribunal is supposed to be you know have some um independence from the government but Different tribunals have different levels of independence. I mean, we go up to the counter at ICBC Driver Services to do something for our clients, and all of those decisions that that person at ICBC makes are reviewable decisions, but they've got real, like, fettered um, authority to make decisions. And this tribunal may have some real fettered authority in their decision-making when they are there to try and um, facilitate the government's agenda. Now, I'll tell you, if it was a different government that I was ideologically really opposed to, I might be taking a different position on this. But, um, you know, it's the nature of the tribunal. I don't know. I disagree. I think if Mike Farnworth got, wrote a letter to the adjudicators at Road Safety BC and said, 
hey, so just so you know, we're really concerned about all the people that are making last drink arguments and saying that they had mouth alcohol. So I just want you to really consider whether it's appropriate to revoke prohibitions for people who drink within 15 minutes of, of being pulled over and whether that's in the public interest. And, you know, there's a lot of problems posed by those people because like the Supreme Court of Canada said in Saint-Ange, th that's really like, Different tribunal. like bad behavior. Different tribunal. That tribunal is supposed to be standing between the individual and the coercive power of the state. This tribunal is supposed to be coming up with rules that would facilitate ride sharing. So they're different tribunals with a different role. I mean, you know, the uh, Road Safety BC's uh, foolish belief that they are an arm of law enforcement um, is, uh, in their tribunal rather, is uh, highly problematic. And we know that, you know, we sort of challenge them on that, but Privacy this Commissioner is, don't agree. <laughs> yeah, Privacy Commissioner did not agree with Road Safety BC's view on that. But the, um, I mean, it's a different tribunal with a different role. And the tribunal at the at the uh, at Road Safety BC is dealing with that, you know, that poor little individual who's being punished on the basis of, of some police officer's opinion or collection of evidence. And the police officer is the one who has imposed the punishment. And the tribunal is trying to you know, step in there and, and determine whether but or not how it's is, how is this different? in accordance with law. See, I don't, I don't think the parallel is as far removed as you think. You have the government committee collecting the evidence, you know, the little committee that they had, their ride-sharing committee, collecting the evidence, producing their report, and submitting the evidence to the tribunal. And then you have other interested parties, like the Taxi Association, preparing their evidence and submitting it to the tribunal. And you have the tribunal weighing evidence that came from the state against evidence from private interested actors who are affected by the decision-making of the state and oh. over whom the state has the power. All right, Miss Lee, you claim that you prepare for this podcast and that you, you know, have reviewed everything beforehand. Have you reviewed the legislation that empowers this tribunal have you reviewed the legislation that tells this tribunal what their limits of their authority are and what they can consider? I think it's a very different tribunal than the one that you deal with every day. Well, the um, one I deal with every day is probably one of the more constrained tribunals as far as their decision-making ability. Exactly. The tribunal we deal with, everything is spelled out in the Motor Vehicle Act and then in all the many, many judicial decisions that you've argued. Um, this other tribunal has a completely different role. They are more of a facilitate the legislation tribunal. So I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I just think, I, I, I don't feel like I'm informed enough about the authority of the, that tribunal, but I would just say right from the start, the different tribunals have a different role. And I'm not enthusiastic about seeing a minister ever writing to a tribunal, but I don't know that it would be... Uh, impermissible in all circumstances. Well, to quote Justice Silverman in a case I read once, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. There's lots of things in the justice system that leave me with more than a bad taste in my mouth. But, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean I get to change it. I have to, I'm not going to become a free man of the land. <laughs> Fair enough. That's for another podcast. Oh, eventually. Um, okay, well, moving on. Moving on to moving violations. 
Yes. Um, we have, yeah, we've been joking for a week. Maybe we joked on the podcast last week. I can never remember if it's something that we talk about in the hallway. Back <laughs> in the day, we used to have lunch all the time and we never have lunch anymore. We don't have um, time. No, I know. The, um, the, uh, the ongoing joke is, uh, how many stories will there be about back to school, uh, driving, speeding in school zones? Uh, I drove out to New West Court today. I had a quick appearance and um, I got to one of the school zones uh, driving up Canada Way. Every time I drive up Canada Way, I'm always singing Canada Way up Canada, Canada Day up Canada Way. Um, and uh, it had one of those shame speed signs and I was stopped and it showed 60 kilometers an hour and it was picking well, somebody up way so far behind me, the radar. And I'm like, don't shame me. I'm stopped. And besides, I'm driving at no more than 30 kilometers an hour when I am driving through this zone. Anyway, I was a little frustrated by that. So in a school zone, the speed limit is 30, 30 kilometers, kilometers an, hour. an hour. If there is a tab attached to the yellow schoolhouse sign that prominently displays the number 30. If there is not, the speed limit is the regular speed limit in that area, except when children are on the highway, in which case it is then 30 kilometers an hour. Thank you, Kyla. Yes, you're welcome. Um, and I say this because the Fort Moody police and, apparently don't know this. Well, as I was driving through the school zones on my way to New West and through past the parks there, I was looking, are there children? Are there children? Oh, you know what? Look, there's lots of children. I'm going 30. But uh, this was Port Moody that you saw this. Port Moody police tweeted a, uh, a picture earlier this week. I guess it was on the first day back to school, Tuesday. Uh, it was a photograph of the yellow schoolhouse sign. And there were three or four photographs in the tweet. But this one stood out to me because it had the yellow schoolhouse sign. No 30 tab attached to it, no 30 prominently displayed, but it was mounted directly above a regular speed sign, like a municipal speed sign, that said 20 kilometers per hour. And I showed it, uh, I was standing next to Grant Gokatru outside traffic court at the time that I saw the tweet, and I showed it to him, and he said, well, what the fuck is that? Yeah. It poses a huge well, I problem. Well, I looked at it and I thought the same pr thing. Um, the, I think the idea there was just to stick the school sign up to, uh, remind people that there's a school there and that they wanted the speed limit to be 20, not 30. Which is great. That would be fine, but that doesn't work. Put a sign up that says, caution school, caution children on the road. Something that's not an approved sign along with the 20 kilometers an hour. Yeah. The intention there of a 20 kilometer an hour sign is that it's always 20 kilometers an hour. That was a standard sign for 20. I yep. don't know where it's 20 in the province. It might be in a few parkades. Um, and apparently that <clears throat> street in Port Moody. However, it is completely inconsistent with... The schoolhouse sign. Exactly. And the schoolhouse sign without the 30 on it. So that means that you should actually go, if you look at the two inconsistent signs, to read them and resolve them, you would go 30 if there were children on the highway, but slower if there weren't. Yeah, yeah. If you if you were to accept the logic of the two signs, I don't think you could be ticketed. Can you read them from top to bottom? Maybe bottom to top, left to right. I don't know. Look, like, I actually <laughs> I think you could not be ticketed <coughs> in that location <clears throat> for going anything fifty kilometers an hour or under. 
because the two signs are directly in conflict with one another, determining which one which one trumps the other or which one has... Um, you have to get a legal opinion as you're driving that, through. What's that legal term when you have two conflicting statutes and you... Paramountcy. Which one has paramountcy? Um, the doctrine of street sign paramountcy. Street sign paramountcy. Oh my God, there's the book. There's the book that you've always wanted to write. <laughs> yeah, this is my big legal, my big legal text. Street sign paramountcy. The case of one signage problem in Port, Port Moody. Moody. <laughs> a place that most of Canada has never heard of. But, I mean, consistent with one's experience with Port Moody police just generally. Well, I, I'm not knocking. The, the police didn't put up the sign, but the police should have understood the problem with they the sign and, not, explained and the sign. not tweeted it. No, I know. Uh, but the point is that, um, yeah, do you need a legal opinion before you drive through there? I think um, you can go 50 because if, if, if there's no speed limit in effect, it's 50. Well, but then you have a ticket and you've got to dispute it and you've got to go to court. And yeah. you got to get the legal opinion and bring it along. Yeah, but maybe. yes, Port Moody has had its problems over the years. And this we've been a little hard on Port Moody. Port Moody is not our Florida, um, but um, and it's not our Alabama either. But it's had its, um, there, there, there have been problems. There are problems in Port Moody. This is true. So um, just be careful if you're out there and you're looking for school zone signage, that the school zone signage is properly mounted. And if you see examples of this, probably a good idea to bring them to the attention of your city council. Yeah, explain it to them. I mean, the municipal planning department, the traffic planning department would probably stop and look at the big manual that's prepared by the provincial government. We've got a copy of it in our office that explains how all the signs are supposed to be displayed uh, and flip through it and figure that one out. Port Moody, you know, the, if you're not in British Columbia, and even if you are in British Columbia and you're not paying attention, you may not know that we have different municipalities. Sometimes they have their own municipal police force and sometimes they have the RCMP. Uh, and the municipal the, the municipalities that have their own police force, um, you know, have to train their police officers and and have to come up with policies for those officers and have to deal with the crime that's there. And uh, sometimes they're well prepared to deal with the things that they've got, and sometimes they're less prepared because they don't have the grand bureaucracy uh, uh, giving out directives. And so Port Moody is a particularly small jurisdiction and a fairly small police force. And they rely on the training of the police that they get from the uh, Justice Institute. And they're very good officers and lovely, uh, as so many are around the province. Um, but um, apparently they did not recognize the, the, contradic the contradictory sign. Yes. So uh, find Port Moody Police's Twitter, have a laugh, and uh, share, share any photos of contradictory signage that you find. And uh, send them to me on Twitter. Tag me, tag me in a tweet. Sure. We've got lots of people um, who are tweeting uh, photos of themselves in the t-shirts that I sent out sometime God the middle of last it, week. I knew you'd find a you way just, to talk you about just your segwayed. shirts. <laughs> so we, we registered as a trademark. Lawyer told me not to talk to you because it's something I've been telling my clients for years. If the police you know, are knocking at your door, you just blame me and say, lawyer told me not to talk to you. And I worked this phrase out and ultimately we registered it as a trademark and we ordered it on some t-shirts and some other things and this last week I just thought you know what I'm going to give away a bunch of these t-shirts so I notif I put up a, a notice on my own personal Twitter for about an hour and a half and uh, had about I think a hundred in the end uh, people wanting t-shirts so the t-shirts have gone out and people are taking pictures of themselves and sending them back to us now 
um, and uh, with the really, really long hashtag I've been typing each time, nobody else has. Lawyer told me not to talk to you. Anyway, I appreciate all the feedback that we had with that. It was fun. I can tell you it uh, came with absolutely no planning. It was just a whim one day. There you go. Now, our very brief last topic is more of a plea to government and uh, Claire Trevanna, if you're listening, David Eby, if you're listening, Mike Farnworth, I know you're not listening because <clears throat> you don't listen to podcasts, but... The weather's uh, been just so fantastic that you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to travel right now on my bike. My electric bike. And I'm thinking to myself, man, it would be great if I had an electric bike. I can't afford an electric car. I'm not going to wire my house for it. But if I had an electric bike, I'd I could ride around. to work and yeah. I could get around. And I'd be carbon neutral. Yeah. And be one less car on the road. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd still have my car at home and I would drive it when necessary. But I could be one more person riding their electric bike downtown. Yeah. And, you know, if only I could afford that $6,000 price for the electric bike. The problem, of course, is that if you go buy an electric car, you're going to get a credit. The government's going to give you a credit for buying that electric car. And there's like these tax breaks have been federally and provincially. You get a grant exactly. towards your purchase. And where is the grant for the electric bike? Thank you to Remy from Twitter for pointing this out as an important topic on the podcast. I really think that, you know, the government should step forward with this. This makes sense to me. It makes perfect sense. Um, especially, he's, he's incredibly <clears throat> right. And it's... And it's it's a nonpartisan issue. Uh, back when I was a BC Liberal, uh, Gordon Campbell was the guy who got bike lanes starting to be built in Vancouver. The BC Liberals were outdoing it. I, they gave me a sweatshirt that I gave to Barry the other day, um, inadvertently, uh, Act Now BC or something like that, when they were creating bike lanes. We have bike lanes now all over the place. They're creating more and more bike lanes in Vancouver. You can ride your electric bike in a bike lane. You're one less car on the road. <clears throat> um, government step up, provide some encouragement. Uh, it'll help the electric bike industry. The more electric bikes that we get out there, the better. Mm -hmm. There's lots of companies, you know, small businesses in the British lower Columbia. mainland. British, 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 British Columbia. Columbia. People making. Putting make them, yeah. and sell electric bikes. You're contributing. It's a local industry. You're contributing back to this industry. You're putting money back in the pockets of taxpayers and you're saving the environment. All of that is good stuff for an election. This is a good thing going into elections. We actually assemble electric bikes. I mean, buying components all over the place, but there's British Columbia companies that are assembling electric bikes. Do we have any British Columbia companies assembling cars? No, we don't have a Chrysler plant in British Columbia. We have electric bike people. It, we're always looking for things that are innovative ways to, uh, to expand our economy, new technology, ideal. Uh, we've got uh, mills around the province closing because of, uh, of rationalization of the forestry industry and, yeah. and, and uh, decline in construction overall. Andrew Wilkinson, this might, you know, help you become more of a man of the people. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not counting on that, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> but really, I mean, you know, this is a this is an industry. I mean, look, Alberta is just retrenching right now, uh, going deeper and deeper into oil. We had a you know formerly very progressive government that was looking for ways to find diversify their economy. This is a way to diversify our economy uh, and encourage it. And you know, um, protectionism is in. So come up with a grant <laughs> for ones that are manufactured in BC. Uh, I'm sure there might be some sort of uh, 
whatever the NAFTA version is called now, uh, lawsuit that would follow. But what the heck, it would probably persuade a lot of people to get on electric bikes. So um, this is our call to government here on the podcast. Inspired by Remy. Inspired by Remy. Serves all the credit. Uh, yeah, he thought about it. And as we talked about it, it just made perfect sense. All right. So it's that time again, Paul. We have the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of Before the Week. Before we do, okay. can we just say, since I got back um, from my trip to the mountains, I have been just shocked with how many people I'm seeing texting while driving. Every day I'm looking over and people are sitting there. Last night I was driving home uh, and uh, a guy, an uh, 18-year-old in a new Maserati, and he just like not even trying to hide it and i'm thinking is it is it like i've seen the enforcement have people not seen the enforcement what is going on why do people continue to do this in any event i've just seen a lot of ridiculous drivers this week texting while driving kyla tell me about the real ridiculous driver of the week the real ridiculous driver of the week uh, also in honor of my friend rebecca uh, at animal law um, actually, I don't know her Twitter handle by heart. Rebecca. Yeah, I should. I think it's Animal Law Canada. Um, but she would be upset to hear about this one. A trucker who has been ticketed in British Columbia uh, for having his two dogs on the bed of his, like, the flatbed. Flat ton. A flatbed. semi. Just lying on a dog bed, not oh secured. Oh just lying on a dog bed while he's driving down the highway. What if they fell? Oh. What if he had to stop suddenly? Okay, there's two things about that. It's incredibly dangerous and awful. And I'll bet it was fun as could be for the dogs. <laughs> um, but, but cruel. Well, cruel it's, only, it's cruel if something goes wrong. Yeah. It's a, it's a blast as a dog to be out there standing. They, you, they probably thought they were running really fast. Sure, but it's not right to put your dog in that. No, and it is it is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to dogs. Well, I know. I I was worried about dogs as being loose inside, and when I have your dog in the car, I worry about him being loose. I usually have my arm on him. Yeah. When I was a kid, dog seat belts. Pre seat belt days, when I was a kid, whenever my dad would slam on the brakes, his arm would automatically go over to us in the passenger seat to hold us <laughs> hold us in, and I do that to your dog. Anyway, this <clears> this. <throat> trucker was stopped at a inspection station in Golden on the highway. Speed limit there is anywhere from 80 to 100, depending where you are on the highway. 100 kilometers an hour. It, that's not fun to be standing in that. No. no. Not for a dog. No. Not for anybody. That's no. dangerous. So what was the ticket? What was the ticket? For having unsecure load. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is a good opportunity, actually. For the provincial government to think about an offense under the Motor Vehicle Act for not properly caring for your dog in your is. vehicle. There is. Under Section 72 of the BC Motor Vehicle Act, there's an offense for not having a secured pet in the bed of a, a truck. Um, and it's also an offense under the uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. But a broader, I'm just thinking of a broader one of, of um, having your, your animal in your vehicle in an unsafe manner. Yeah, but, you know, some dogs wouldn't respond well to, like, a, a seat belt if they were in the cabin. Well, no, you don't have to have them in a seat belt, but, I mean, there's there's times that it could just be unsafe the way you've got it. Yes. So. Yeah. 
and there are there are tickets. And I and I would never have thought of somebody ever doing this a flat at deck semi. Uh, so and this would be a circumstance where it would apply. And I'm sure there's other you know there's probably people who have done it. I was visualizing like a three quarter ton or one ton truck with a flat deck on no. it. No, uh, we're talking semi. Yeah. Like you'd transport logs on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our ridiculous driver of the week. Well, if that's, you that's have not a funny animal. ridiculous driver. That's an yeah. awful ridiculous driver. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's got to be the shame. Yeah. Sometimes shame is the deterrent. Deterrent yeah. factor of shame. Yeah. Don't put your dog on the bed of your semi truck, or you will be called out on this podcast for being a jerk. It's also reasonably foreseeable that you will be called out on the podcast for being a jerk. Yeah. So driver. Think twice next time. Look after your dog. Put him in the cabin of the truck with you. Should there be a summary at the end of the podcast or are we just done? No, we're done. Okay, all right. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Okay, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. This is why Paul is the sometimes co-host and not official co-host because that's how he loves to end the episode. But you may want to contact Paul to discuss some of his wacky ideas or beg him for a t-shirt. Um, and you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com uh, or give us a call 604-685-8889. We're always here to help and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 